reality is if you comb through those opinions, you're not going to find an ideologue on either extreme. You're going to find a moderate judge who perhaps uh, has uh, leans a little bit more liberal in a case, but she is very much focused on the facts in front of her. She adheres to, to precedent, uh, and she is looking for how to resolve the case uh, based on the facts and the law in front of her. She's not uh, this type of ideologue that they're making her out to be at all. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And I write uh, Legal Blog Watch for Law.com and my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. Today's show is sponsored by Clio and Landy Insurance. Well, uh, Judge Sonia Sotomayor, a judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, was nominated this week by President Obama to replace retiring Justice Souter on the Supreme Court. Judge Sotomayor grew up in the South Bronx uh, in public housing there. She's the daughter of Puerto Rican parents. Despite what some might consider to be challenges, uh, including uh, uh, having been diabetic since a young age, uh, Judge Sotomayor uh, attended Princeton, uh, went to Yale Law School, where she was editor of the law review there, and went on to uh, a stellar career, first as an assistant district attorney, then as a corporate litigator in a New York law firm, and then as the first Latina appointed to the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, Bob, Sonia Sotomayor's nomination came as a historic moment, not only for women in law, but also for the Hispanic community. If approved, she would become the first Hispanic, the third woman, and the sixth Catholic justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, well, not surprisingly, um, her nomination, as nominations do, has come with its share of opposition. Uh, there are already dueling YouTube videos. Uh, some are saying that she lacks the intellect. Some are saying she lacks the uh, temperament. Uh, others are looking carefully and, and uh, with criticism in some cases at some of her written opinions to date, particularly uh, the, her involvement in the Richie V. DiStefano case, the reverse discrimination case uh, out of New Haven. Uh, the Boston Globe uh, today referred to all of this as a, as a cyberspace blitzkrieg of, of commentary about her. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will discuss the impact of the nomination of Sonia Sotomayor, take a look at her background, and see how her nomination might impact the future of Supreme Court decisions. And helping to keep us in line on the facts will we'll be two guests and also to share their, their perspectives and commentary uh, today. Uh, joining us first today is Professor Jenny Rivera. Uh, Professor Rivera is director of the Center on Latino and Latina Rights and Equality and a professor of law at the City University of New York School of Law. Before joining uh, the faculty there, Professor Rivera taught at Suffolk Law School here in Boston, Massachusetts, where I am, and practiced law as a civil rights lawyer in New York. In 1993, Professor Rivera uh, 
clerked for then District Judge Sotomayor uh, prior to her appointment to the Second Circuit. Uh, Professor Rivera is former administrative law judge of the New York State Division of Human Rights and was the first Latina in this position. Welcome to the show, Professor Jenny Rivera. Thank you. And our next guest is Professor Stephen Vermeil. He's an adjunct professor at the American University Washington College of Law and associate director of the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project, which is a 10-year-old program where Washington College of Law students teach constitutional law in the public high schools of Washington, D.C. Professor Vermeil covered the U.S. Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal from 1979 until 1991. He teaches constitutional law. First Amendment, media law, and a seminar on the workings of the Supreme Court. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Wormiel. Glad to be here. Well, Jenny, you you sound like you've got some uh, details on the facts of Judge Sotomayor's background. Can you give us the skinny on her? Well, you did a nice uh, uh, sort of background history on her. Just uh, she decided the baseball strike. She certainly, I think, that brought her uh, brought her some fame, uh, certainly locally and uh, I think nationally. Uh, because of everyone's love for baseball, that was when she was on the the trial court. Uh, but as you said, the judge grew up in very humble beginnings, uh, with not many resources uh, to her name or to her family's name. Uh, was raised by a single mother who worked two jobs, worked very hard to get her children to have a good education. Just so the mayor was, as she said, very uh, fortunate, had many opportunities, and was able to go to Princeton and Yale. So she's had sort of this uh, quite. Imp- impressive story starting out from very humble beginnings and achieving really on the strengths of her intellect and her drive and hard work. And you see that in everything that she does. And Steve Vermeil, you, you've covered the Supreme Court. You uh, teach constitutional law. Uh, what's, what's your perspective on this nomination? What's your reaction to this nomination? I think every nomination has a, you know, brings its own dynamic. Um, it's interesting to see the the tables reversed here and the Republicans in the minority and the Democrats in the majority after where we were with Roberts and Alito, the last two nominations. Um, you know, I think this is a, a nominee with a vast amount of legal experience. Uh, and and very deep qualifications, um, and and the hearings should should really focus on uh, her her ability, her qualifications. Um, I hope they don't come down to to people picking apart uh, misinterpreted statements that she's made, which which seems to be the direction we're already headed. Well, isn't that the nature of the game to some extent? Uh, Jenny, you were a clerk for her, so so you have a perspective that that few people do. What did you learn from from working with her uh, that tells you something about how she might serve as as a justice of the Supreme Court? Well, so it seems to be three things that are uh, now circulating through the media and the blogosphere and all of this, which is her judicial temperament, her intellect and whether or not she uh, acts in a way that should concern us as, quote-unquote, an activist judge. Um, I didn't see those three things. First of all, she, or I didn't see that, that my response would in any way add to the criticism of her based on those three things. Um, she's brilliant. Anyone who has worked with her, heard her, reads her opinions, uh, appeared before her, understands that. She's very well prepared. She's very thoughtful. Um, so she, she doesn't, it's not, 
true. It is inaccurate to suggest that somehow she doesn't have the intellectual fortitude to be on the high court. She does. Uh, the questions about her judicial temperament I find particularly uh, uh, curious. Uh, she does ask probing questions. She is extremely well prepared. She combs through the record uh, before her in a case very carefully, uh, reads the papers very carefully, and she's an exceptionally good listener. She goes uh, into oral argument, and she is there to ask questions to see if there are some doubts or concerns that she has that can be resolved based on uh, the arguments of uh, the lawyers, if there's something that she doesn't quite understand from what they've written or argued below uh, or in the papers to her, obviously she uh, asks and tries to resolve that. Um, but she is not uh, a pushover on the bench. She does ask questions, and if an attorney is not responding to her questions, she's going to keep asking, trying to get uh, an answer to, to her question. I mean, I think others have commented that it is certainly curious that this line of um, you know, criticism of her seems to be taking some hold. Uh, it is the kind of thing we've heard against uh, women who come up for various jobs in the legal profession. Uh, and so I, I myself am very curious as to whether or not you have some, some gendered aspect to the way, uh, you know, she's assessed in terms of her approach to, to oral argument and the bench. But I know that I uh, never observed, and I worked with her, and I'm a law professor, I would bring my students to observe her both at, when she was on the trial court on the Court of Appeals. I didn't observe uh, a judge who was disrespectful. She's extremely respectful in the courtroom. Uh, certainly a judge who's collegial uh, uh, with her peers on uh, on the bench and when she was in the district court, the, the other members of uh, that court. Uh, and so I didn't see any of this uh, type of person that uh, people are trying to characterize. It's certainly a stereotype, a mischaracterization uh, of who she is. Uh, and, you know, the whole line about her being an activist and the stuff on YouTube and all of this, the reality is, uh, and, uh, you know, my colleague today may certainly have more to add on this, the reality is if you comb through those opinions, you're not going to find an ideologue on either extreme. You're going to find a moderate judge who perhaps uh, has uh, leans a little bit more liberal in a case, but she is very much focused on the facts in front of her. She adheres to to precedent, uh, and she is looking for how to resolve the case uh, based on the facts and the law in front of her. She's not uh, this type of ideologue that they're making her out to be at all. Where does she stand on the big issues? Uh, there have been some concerns expressed about abortion, First Amendment, race, religion. Does this, uh, Steve, do you have any idea on that? Well, um, uh, there, there are some of those areas on which she's written some, some thoughtful and well-reasoned opinions and others in which she hasn't. Um, I, I think we don't know how she feels about abortion as a constitutional right under the, the 14th Amendment because she hasn't really had occasion to address the issue. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting that both sides now, the, the pro-choice groups, uh, have have raised that, and the the pro life groups have raised that, and uh, I guess it's unavoidable that that's going to become something that people want to argue about and talk about. I would assume that she's not going to be able to tell the Senate Judiciary Committee very much about how she feels about that issue, having not decided cases about it, and and that seems to me to be the right the right response on her part. She's decided numerous cases involving race discrimination, gender discrimination, um, free speech issues. I think she's a, 
from from the opinions I've looked at, uh, she's a moderate judge who writes thoughtful and careful opinions, and I don't see that there's a particular uh, predictable point of view that comes through in all instances. I mean, if I can just add, certainly on uh, uh, on those discrimination cases, you know, plaintiffs sometimes win. Plaintiffs sometimes lose, so you, I agree you're not going to find uh, in those kinds of cases something that you can obviously point to. I do think there are a couple of cases that show that uh, she has uh, at least an interest and a perspective about the experience uh, based on gender in the workplace, uh, which is not necessarily unique to her. Certainly you see that in some of the writings uh, from female jurists, not not always true, but sometimes you see that. Uh, so there's some, I think, a little bit of uh, something interesting there. But um, again, sometimes people win and sometimes people lose. And even in cases where she uh, has been the author and has found that there's a, a sufficient basis for a claim on sort of one basis for uh, uh, an argument that there's been discrimination, she will also, along with the panel, find that many of the other claims are unsubstantiated. So she's very fair, as my colleague is saying, very fair. Um, she's very measured uh, in her approach uh, to the law and its application to the facts. Well, in 1992, uh, Bush 1 nominated her to the district court, and then I think in 1997, uh, President Clinton nominated her to the district court, apparently 28 votes against her, all from Republicans. Uh, given that a Republican nominated her to the district court, why the opposition from Republicans now? I mean, the original nomination, you know, di- district court nominations uh, in in the Bush, in the Reagan and Bush, uh, and to a large extent even in the Clinton administration, were worked out with the senators from a particular state. So the fact that Bush nominated her to the district court is probably less significant than than that she was the choice of Senator Moynihan at the time, who was a Democratic senator, uh, and the White House was really deferring to the selection of the New York senators, and it was basically Moynihan's turn uh, to to pick her. So, uh, you know, I don't know that that... The, 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 the seeming bipartisanship there may be a little bit elusive, but I don't think that makes all that much difference. Um, uh, Jenny may know may know more of the detail of this, but my understanding is that in 1997, Republicans opposed her because they could see what was coming. They could see that uh, she was going to be an extremely uh, well-credentialed um, Latina candidate uh, for for the Supreme Court somewhere down the road, and they didn't like the idea. Yeah, that's true. There was certainly uh, a, a real struggle in that appointment to the Second Circuit. Again, not not so much on the merits, but on this concern that uh, being at the Court of Appeals and otherwise having uh, such a stellar record, uh, you know, her intellect, her experience. Or the package, if you will, uh, made her really a formidable uh, uh, contender for uh, consideration for the high court. And that's, that's absolutely true. And I think you're seeing that again. Of course, I would have expected that anyone that uh, President uh, Obama wanted to appoint to the court would be uh, the basis for uh, challenge and sort of a clarion call from the Republican. You know, they're in the minority. They're they're heavy hit. Uh, they are looking for something that can rally, uh, rally uh, the base or their party behind them, and they're looking for something. And so, 
uh, nomination to the Supreme Court has always provided an opportunity to get people behind some sense of, uh, indeed, you know, what's the philosophy, what do we stand for, because, of course, uh, it is the, the highest court in the judicial branch. They render such significant uh, opinions, and there are, you know, so few of them. There are only nine justices. And so it's, uh, in that way, really primed for that kind of targeting and that kind of, you know, uh, of focusing on the individual and their record for a greater agenda. It's interesting that uh, the New York Times this morning has a piece looking at her record in business cases and, and sort of comes down as concluding that uh, you can't declare her either pro or anti-business, that her decisions go both ways, uh, really, you know, depending on the case and depending on the facts. Uh, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press yesterday issued a report looking at her First Amendment cases and, and kind of came to the same conclusion, that she doesn't reflect a particular bias or bent in, in deciding these cases. Uh, but what about what about her life experiences and what, and what that brings, uh, what that might bring to the bench? Uh, I, I mean, there, I'm not seeing as much discussion as that. Is that significant? Um, and uh, if so, what what might it mean in terms of uh, its influence on the Supreme Court? I, I mean, I would suggest that her life that her life experiences in a number of different ways are important um the president said he was looking for somebody who had the the common touch who who had empathy i mean she i think she understands the plight of humankind in a way that that not all nominees would that doesn't necessarily mean that every case she decides is going to be sympathetic to the victim or sympathetic to the plaintiff or sympathetic to the defendant but but understanding the hardships in our society that that contribute to to sort of human condition, um, you know, can't can't be a bad thing. Clarence Thomas advocated that he would do that when he was nominated. He had this very very poignant moment in his confirmation hearings, which turned out to be there. There turned out to be no real evidence of this, but in his confirmation hearing, he said. Uh, his office at the at the courthouse in Washington overlooked the driveway where they bring the prisoners in to the courthouse to, to to come to their trials. And he said he often looked out the window and said, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." That he, you know, that he would be compassionate and understood their plight. Well, I, I can't think of. I don't think I'd use up all five fingers on one hand to identify the number of times in which that's turned out to be true in his case. But it's interesting that he said that, uh, and it was sort of considered an asset in his case, and now people want to criticize her for for sort of having the same potential uh, experience and bringing it to the table. The other part of her background that, that I think has not been discussed enough uh, is that it's been more than 50 years since the Supreme Court had a justice who had experience as a federal trial court judge. Souter and O'Connor had experience in the state trial courts. But so much of what Congress does and so much of what the Supreme Court decides involve rules governing the federal district courts, habeas corpus rules, um, sentencing rules, burdens of proof in civil rights cases. Uh, jurisdictional issues. I think it's great that the Supreme Court is going to have somebody on the bench for the first time 
who's actually had to apply some of those rules and may have some common sense about how they work. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the other thing, there's, of course, the professional experience and and, and all that brings, and then there's the, the personal life story and all that brings. And professionally, I think that's right. The, the fact that she's been on the trial bench and has had to apply uh, the standards and, and rulings from above uh, uh, that she was very aware of, uh, would read all of that material regularly and uh, understand sort of uh, how to work that through in uh, the nitty-gritty of the courtroom. Uh, and in cases, I, I think that's right, that that brings really something spectacular to the court. And, of course, she has all those years of both the the private practice of having been in a firm and having all that commercial uh, uh, legal experience, as well as having been a government lawyer prosecutor, and uh, again, with that daily experience of being that kind of lawyer and the impact that it is of doing that kind of lawyering, both in the private uh, and the, the public bar, and how you serve your client, whether it's the people of the state of New York or your individual business clients, uh, and what that means to a case, how, you, how these standards affect the actual litigation of cases uh, on the ground. So I think that is, of course, tremendous. Her, her personal story uh, about who she is, uh, and how it resonates for I think many people in the country and our and our aspirations right sort of the aspiration of of this dream of uh, coming from very humble beginnings and despite all obstacles uh, you know having this moment when you can achieve uh, and you know for a, a judge the the pinnacle of your career so it it really is amazing to bring that all to the court I, I think she has been and and as has already been said the president expects she's been very clear that. She anticipates that, as has been true for her life so far, that those experiences influence the kind of person she is, right? I've suggested it also influences how people perceive her. I mean, it's not, it's not possible to, to look at this jurist and not think the person's a Latina, the person's a woman, the person came from humble beginnings, the person's had these experiences. These things all influence us and, and what we make of them. But she has clearly said, and the president said, I want someone who those experiences have made them, as we're saying, empathetic or, or whatever you will, um, and, and cognizant of the fact that you've got real people in front of you. Uh, these are not mere abstractions without consequences in their application. So I think that's terrific. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk more about the nominee to the Supreme Court and uh, the impact she's likely to have on the court. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Right from the beginning, you know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and I really felt like if I'm 
that well taken care of it, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Professor Jenny Rivera. She's the director of the Center on Latino and Latina Rights and Equality and professor of law at Cooney School of Law in New York. And Professor Stephen Vermeil, who is an adjunct professor at American University Washington College of Law and an expert on the United States Supreme Court. Well, so far, we've been talking about what her attributes and her qualities are. Uh, but as far as uh, this nominee is concerned uh, for Sonia Sotomayor, what can we expect to hear as negatives uh, about her through the nomination process? And what are the, the drawbacks that she brings to the Supreme Court? Well, I think you're hearing already some of the attempts to, as I mentioned before, uh, put her into this box of some extreme liberal or, or someone who believes, as you see again on some of that YouTube, that uh, she is there to make policy and that's not her role. So I think you're going to see some of those kinds of charges uh, and, and those issues raised uh, in, in the process. Uh, I don't think they're going to stick again because the record is just not there. The record for those kinds of charges is not there. Again, as we've said, she's a moderate, perhaps somewhat liberal uh, judge on certain issues or as, based on the facts in front of her in a particular case, uh, but you're not going to find sort of that extremism and, and the, the statement about banking policy, you know, everyone has already, or many people have criticized uh, the attempt to, to use that against her as taking the statement out of context, and many lawyers have said, well, we all know that's what really goes on. Uh, certainly circuit courts uh, and judges, uh, justices in the Supreme Court are making choices uh, about standards and rules and so forth, and they are making choices that in some sense are reflecting a particular policy and values. So I don't think that it's going to be fair to all of a sudden criticize her about being out of the mainstream or have said something that is not somehow uh, a representation of the business of the courts, at least at the Court of Appeals, which was the distinction that she was making at the time. And the other criticism that I've heard come up already, which I think is is not going to have legs, but but they, they certainly will will spend time asking her about it, uh, is that she's been reversed several times by the Supreme Court, and um, it it really is a, a a difficult issue to mount a campaign on, which is I think what some of the conservative groups want to do. It's in their interests to try to build their constituencies over this nomination. You know, the reversals are, are often on very technical cases in which you're interpreting a highly, a highly technical piece of a federal statute, and different federal appeals courts have taken different views, and the Supreme Court may have another view and say she got it wrong, but it's not, it's not the way it may be depicted. It's not a competency issue. It's a it's a reasonable minds could read this statute differently issue, and if Congress wants to draft the statutes more precisely, any time they're welcome to do that. Um, but I think that's that's going to come up. The other part of that is the Supreme Court now takes cases to reverse the lower court 
close to 80% of the time so far this term. And um, uh, so it's not surprising that when they review a case, they're, they're reversing her. Uh, I think we'll hear a lot about this New Haven firefighters case that's it's going to be decided by the Supreme Court in the next few weeks, and everybody's talking about her role in it, which I find kind of curious because nobody actually has any idea what her role in it was. Uh, she was a member of a three-judge panel that didn't really write an opinion. Uh, they they wrote a very short one-paragraph opinion affirming the district court, all three judges in agreement. The other two judges were Robert Sack and Rosemary Pooler, um, there isn't any particularly distinctive role that Judge Sotomayor played in that case. So the, the idea that somehow people are making it sound like they're reading a 50-page opinion and picking apart her her analysis when there isn't any such thing. Yeah. And and on some of those cases, uh, you know, that went up to the Supreme Court. Of course, there were some of the justices that uh, didn't agree with the majority and uh, indeed were persuaded by the opinion, or at least would not have. Reversed, and you know, same thing on in those cases that went up. She's not the only judge on the panel there. She's got other members of the panel have also taken the position. So it it is really hard to make the argument, uh, which in part is an argument about competence, right? So if she gets reversed, she's not doing a good job, and that's just not not the case. Nothing else substanti- uh, supports that, and uh, certainly in that uh, Ricci case, you know, it's a panel of three. Uh, the the second circuit itself was very divided uh, with respect to the on, the request for the en banc, and so the majority uh, itself didn't want to review it en banc. So uh, you've got something that I think is going to be very hard to pin on her. That doesn't mean that uh, her detractors won't try and will make a very uh, you know a, a vigorous argument uh, to try and say that this somehow is the aha moment. This really shows her her true colors, but, uh, you know, the record's just not there. And with that kind of body and work in the years in, uh, this one case is, is in many ways, in terms of the writing from the panel, not not a strong uh, example. I mean, it's just not going to do it for you. People can disagree with the underlying analysis of the district court opinion, which is what's adopted by, by Judge Sotomayor's uh, panel, and people can have different opinions about the way the, the, the town handled the very serious issue it had before it. But uh, it's going to be very hard to say that somehow the way that uh, her, uh, Judge Sotomayor's panel handled this reveals something dramatic uh, about her that is enough to um, uh, push people from, uh, in a direction not, not, to, not to vote for her confirmation. Jenny, we've just about reached the end of our program, so it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with uh, your contact information. So, Stephen, let's start with you. You know, I think that she's going to be confirmed. I think that this is a a very high-caliber pick in terms of her legal experience, in terms of the craftsmanship uh, and and background that she brings to the bench. Uh, You know, I, I believe in the Senate Judiciary Committee process. I think Republicans have the right to to convey to her their hope that she will stick to the judge's role of of interpreting the statutes and interpreting the Constitution and not trying to to fill in missing pieces or invent new 
new meaning, that's fine. I think they that, that's I think the Constitution lays that role out for them. But I hope that it's done in a in a thoughtful and responsible manner that doesn't uh, attempt to destroy the reputation of a very credible candidate for the Supreme Court. Um, I'm I'm happy to to hear from people about this. At my email address is s w e r m i e l at wcl.american.edu. And Jenny? I am optimistic that uh, she will be uh, confirmed, that she'll move through the process. I am also hopeful that we have a con- as a country are going to move past the scorched earth <laughs> uh, approaches to, to these confirmations, uh, but we shall see. But uh, I think, as in the past, that her, uh, her intellect, on the merits uh, that she is going to be successful and that the committee is, again, going to see what our president saw, which is someone who is extremely competent, uh, extremely able to do the job, and who brings this wealth of experience to the court. I'm also very, very, very pleased that we are going to address, uh, with, with her, I hope, confirmation, uh, this continued gender imbalance on the court. Uh, she will only be the third woman appointed. She'll only be one of the two of the nine, which is uh, really quite, uh, I think, troubling for us. Uh, And she will, of course, be the first person from the Latino community. And I just think it is wonderful that uh, there's such a strong candidate on the merits who distinguishes herself in so many ways, who also uh, addresses this very serious issue uh, uh, by joining the court. Um, my contact information uh, by email is Rivera, R-I-V as in Victor, E-R-A, at mail, M-A-I-L, dot law, dot C-U-N-Y, dot E-D-U. And if people want to see sort of the center site, they can go to the CUNY Law School site and click on Justice Initiatives, and they'll find the Center on Latino and Latino Rights and Equality. Thank you very much, by the way. And thank you. Well, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. To all of our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And let me add my thanks to the guests for taking the time to be with us today and uh, express my hope that uh, we do see this nominee confirmed. And uh, remind our listeners that we are also in the uh, iTunes podcast library, and you can find us there as well. Craig, I look forward to talking to you next week. We'll be back then, Bob, to talk about another great legal topic. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.